welcome to the Healthy Gospel Church podcast, a podcast where we explore all aspects of church life while also shining a spotlight on good practice in your local church. My name is David Meredith, I'm the Mission Director for the Free Church of Scotland based in Edinburgh and I'll be your host. If you like what you hear, then please like, share and subscribe. Spread the news. My guest today is an old friend and colleague, Alec McDonald. Alec is retired, although you wouldn't believe it by looking at what he does. He's got a, a new life as a, a, a tropodeur, he's a bit of a, a musician, so uh, we'll maybe hear about that later. Alec, it's great to have you on the Healthy Gospel Church podcast. Very warm welcome. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Great. Now, a lot of our listeners perhaps wouldn't know who you are, Brief bio is that you were brought up in the Highlands of Scotland, the Strath of Codonan. Um, can you tell us a little bit of what your upbringing looked like? Yeah, I was brought up on a quite a remote uh, sheep farm uh, in the Strath of Codonan uh, and went to a one teacher school to begin with, primary school, then uh, on to secondary school. Uh, so I was brought up on the farm and uh, very familiar with all the the farm activities and the shepherding and all that. So, yeah, that was my early experiences. Were you? Did you have a sense of being cut off from the world as being a bit different? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had, in a way, I had a very kind of, not lonely childhood, but I was on my own a lot of the time. Uh, so I had to make my own, my own fun, my own games, and this is where imagination came in a lot. So <laughs> I suppose that's what developed my imagination in those early years, yeah. It's funny, people brought up with sheep uh, either love sheep or really can't stand the things or are really <laughs> quite indifferent. What, what, what is your reaction when you see a bunch of sheep these days? Uh, I, I really am quite interested in, in sheep. And um, uh, I suppose, you know, when you were working on the farm, you saw all sides of it. And, you know, like and I would help my dad at the lambing time sometimes and really on a wet, cold day, sort of trying to get a yow and a lamb into uh, the warmth somewhere. It was really a, quite a struggle, you know, picking up the lamb, going on a few yards, putting the lamb down so that the yow would follow you and so on. So, yeah, um, I mean, people have a kind of romantic idea of, of shepherding and farming, but often it's really, really tough. And uh, uh, I, I didn't really have a desire, I don't think, to follow on in, in farming. And it was impossible because my, my father was just an employee on the, the farm. He was the head shepherd and farm manager there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, your, your mum and dad were always very, very smart people. Can, can you tell us a, a little bit about, you know, what, what conversation was um, in, in the family? Would you talk about big issues? Do, do you think folk of that generation were more theologically informed? Maybe they didn't have, you know, a secondary or tertiary education, but do you think they had an ability to hold forth in some big ideas? Yeah, I mean, both my, my parents were quite intelligent. Uh, in fact, my, my mother uh, would have gone on, no doubt, to further education because she was went on to secondary school uh, and uh, she had to go back home when her mother died to look after the rest of the family when she was 16. Uh, so, yeah, they, they were, you know, I would say pretty intelligent, loved reading, um, 
and yeah my my dad was was quite political as well he was he was uh, kind of red hot labor um very socialist and i don't know did that experience come from early days or was it his experience in the war uh, uh when he was in the army i'm not quite sure but uh, certainly he uh he always held up his end against the, the local landowners and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you come from a county of Sutherland, you know, it's dominated by the Manny, isn't it? You know, the statue oh, yes. uh, <laughs> above Galsby. To, to what extent do you think the the shadow of the clearances influenced sort of um, the, the, the thought life of Southern people? Yeah, to some extent. Some people uh, kind of react against that and just want to put all that behind them kind of thing. And in fact, the people of Golspear are quite proud of uh, the, the statue of the Duke on the on the top of Benvragi. But um, a, a lot of people look back, obviously, on the time of the clearances as a, a desperate time. And my, my own, uh, my mother's people were evicted from a place about six miles out in the hill from where I grew up, uh, a very, very exposed kind of area. And they'd been evicted to there, I think, a couple of times before that. Um, so these, these memories run deep, I think, uh, with a lot of people in the north, uh, not just in Sutherland, but all over. But, um, I mean, there have been excellent books written on this. Um, Set Adrift Upon the World by James Hunter is an excellent book that goes into it all. And, and he was able to use a lot of the, the records of the Sutherland estate as well, which, can, you know, shows a, a broader picture on it. Um, but it was all this idea of um, improvements, and, and we keep on seeing that, people trying to uh, force their ideas on the Highlands for, for improving it um, without really consulting the, the people who live there and have lived there for generations. But, um, yeah, I mean, in those early days, um, my parents were very much in, uh, aware of that. But also there was the whole uh, Christian side of it that... Um, was made aware that you know the evangelicals, people like uh, Donald Sage and so on, um, and people before him like Hugh Miller, spoke out uh, against the the abuses of the the landowners. So all yeah, yeah that was all very much a, a part of my my upbringing. Yeah, I mean, last Sunday evening I was preaching in a church in Edinburgh, and the passage I was given was Leviticus twenty-five, which is the jubilee passage, the year of jubilee that every fiftieth year the slaves were being set free, debt was to be uh, repaid. And I, I was just thinking that as, as I was growing up, these issues were never. I never heard a sermon on debt. I never heard a sermon on political injustice. You know, some traditions go too far the other way. What, what's your thinking of, of tackling social issues in preaching? And do you see dangers in going too far one way or the other? There's always dangers in not seeing the relevance of any subject like that to the central message of the gospel, which is Christ. But of course, he is the Lord of the whole of life. So all these issues come into it. Um, I mean, when we go back in our own our own history uh, in the 19th century, people like Thomas Chalmers, Thomas Guthrie, Hugh Miller, and so on, were at the forefront of, of speaking about social issues, and they they applied what they saw as the the teaching of Scripture to that. Uh, the danger, as I say, is is taking that, cutting that adrift from 
the the heart of the gospel in in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's concerned for the whole man, the whole person. Yeah, let's talk a, a little bit about ministry. Uh, I, I think your you know your ministry. Uh, I don't like calling it career, but your ministry path has been really interesting. For for being you know a rural lad, uh, you ended up ministering in probably the three big cities of Scotland, um, Bishop Briggs, then you went to Aberdeen, then you went to Buccleuch in in Edinburgh. Uh, Although they were all in cities, the one Bishop Briggs was a small church, we'd almost call it in need of revitalization today, the other two were, were larger churches. Tell us a little bit about you know, your move to Bishop Briggs, your your time there, and, and contrast a little bit about small v large. Mm. Yeah, I've had the experience of, I suppose, being in both. Um, Bishop Briggs, I suppose, was, <laughs> it was one of the few places that showed any interest in Collingwood <laughs> when I emerged from the Free Church College, because I was a bit notorious at that stage for looking like a hippie and not like a Free Church minister. Uh, but they they put their faith in me, and uh, I've always been very grateful for that. Um, I, I'd really been very much influenced by, by Francis Schaeffer and uh, his... Uh, his teaching uh, about making the the gospel relevant to our society. Um, And uh, I I suppose he had also started off in in kind of small churches as well before he set out on his kind of uh, mission into Europe and uh, becoming a missionary to the the intellectuals, as he was called. so in in the the small church like Bishop Briggs was quite small. I mean, it was maybe about fifty to seventy, maybe at the best times. Um, but I suppose that's not maybe judged too small today. But it, it was quite small then, um, and it was a matter of trying to reach out with the gospel to the the surrounding community. And we ran youth clubs, youth cafes, that kind of thing, as well as the the normal sort of work of the, the, the church. Um, but I was, I suppose I was just cutting my teeth in those days of getting to know what it, what it was to be a minister, you know? Yeah. Um, tell us, uh, and about cities, I mean, you ended up in, in Aberdeen, uh, and then Buccleuch, Bishop Briggs was, I guess, suburban, um, so slightly different. Tell us what, what your experiences were in these two places, big, big picture yeah. experiences. Yeah, just to go back to Bishop Briggs, it was suburban, but we our church was right on the Glasgow boundary, and the section of Site Hill just next to it was quite a notorious area called Galloway Street, and we did a bit of outreach there with young people, and uh, a lot of the fathers were were in prison, that kind of thing. So that that was part of the work there too. But then when I when I went to Aberdeen, Aberdeen uh, was in the middle of the oil boom. Um, and uh, Aberdeen Football Club had just won the uh, whatever it was called then. Uh, European Europa Cup. League is yeah. called now. Yeah. Um, so um, it was all kind of a, quite a successful sort of situation, and a lot of people with a lot of money to throw around, um, which made it quite difficult. I remember for our kids uh, when they went to school um, because they were very very different from that kind of. Economic setup, uh, but uh, it 
was a city centre church and drew people not just from the whole of Aberdeen, but even from out with Aberdeen. Um, and a uh, lot of students too, and also a lot of young working people who had been students. And when I went there, a lot of the older people still referred to the students en encompassing all that group. Yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. they had to eventually realise a lot of these people were settled down and working in Aberdeen. So it, it was a very, uh, you know, a, a great challenge um, ministering to quite a diverse congregation in many ways. Um, but trying to get organized to meet the pastoral needs of that whole, that whole yeah. congregation. Yeah. If I can butt in here, are, is city ministry more exciting than rural ministry? I mean, folk today pit one against the other. Um, you know, a lot of young guys, they, they, they want to go to cities, they want to do a coffee shop evangelism, they want to talk about, you know, dialectical materialism to some, you know, <laughs> philosophy under, undergrad. Is that what, what ministry is all about? It depends what floats your boat, I suppose, but I certainly found Bishop Riggs quite an exciting situation as well. Um because there was there were quite a number of, of young people there, and it's a question of attracting, you know, people. Uh, if you're preaching and your pastoral attitudes are right, it should attract people. I mean, the, the, the gospel is attractive, um, and uh, people... Uh, you know, I, I would say people really need to face the challenge of, of rural and small town ministry and and see the excitement of it. Because often you can get to know people better in that kind of situation uh, than you can in the big cities. Uh, there, you know, there can be just a, um, quite a superficial way you you know people there. Yeah. Yeah, well, people are people, aren't they? You know, and, you know, like Jesus treated everybody as an individual. He had a great social reach, didn't he? He had the ability yeah. to to talk to all sorts of of folk. That, yeah. that's, that's a great model. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the title of our podcast is Healthy Gospel Church Podcast, and the strapline of the Free Church of Scotland, the group that we belong to, is a healthy gospel church for every community in Scotland. As you, as you reflect now as an observer of churches uh, and as a minister, can you give us some of the marks that you would see of a healthy church? Yeah, um, I suppose there, there are various things. One would be, obviously, very good preaching. And by good preaching, I mean not just... Um, preaching that is sound theologically, um, but also uh, relevant to the people that uh, who are being addressed. Um, because I'm afraid that sometimes we can have quite sound preaching, but it's not actually making much contact with the lives of people. And so, so there has to be that. So there has to be uh, good preaching, uh, passionate preaching, but there also has to be um, good good pastoral uh, relevance so that people are understanding the people that they're speaking to and the people in their communities. Also, a uh, healthy church would be the involvement of the membership of the church in the work of the church. I think one of the big problems in all churches is you have maybe quite a large membership 
but you have quite a small group of workers. And I think we need to encourage people to be working in, in the Christian faith and in Christian work. Uh, so these would be so, at least some of the signs of what I would view as a, a healthy gospel church. Yeah, I'm really interested in the pastoral stuff because, you know, um, if I don't want to get un, unduly personal, but, you know, you, you're not a social butterfly. You're not the sort of guy that, you know, works the room. However... You know, I have heard numerous stories of you in a one-to-one, a hospital bed, you in a a crisis, just talking to folk, one-to-one, you know, no audience. Um, You're a preacher, but I know you're also a a pastor. Uh, I mean, maybe it's a stupid question, but how important is it for the preacher to also have a pastoral sensitivity? Well, I I think it's supremely important. Because if you don't have that connection with people, they're not going to pay so much attention to your preaching if they feel that you don't know them. Now, I'm not claiming to be, certainly not claiming to be the best pastor in the world, uh, but I did lay an emphasis on, as you say, that one-to-one thing of, of meeting people in crisis or people in need and, and trying to visit the elderly in congregations and that kind of thing. Um, and that is that is so important that you actually get to know how people are thinking, what their attitudes are, and it, it then feeds back into your preaching as to how you relate biblical passages to people. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, let's unpack a little bit more about your Francis Schaeffer story. Uh, I, oh, was, yeah. I was a student at Strathclyde, and when you were in Bishop Briggs, I remember going along to a meeting there. I don't know, was it the first time when Schaeffer was ever in Scotland? You chaired it, you, you brought the guy. Um, the, it's only... I, I, I'm rereading the, the entire works of Francis Schaeffer again. The guy was such a prophet, wasn't he? Didn't didn't he mm. see where where we're going? What attracted you to Schaefer? What do you think are the main features that Schaefer brought out? And should you know folk be reading Schaefer today? Oh, definitely. I think they should still be reading him. I mean, in some senses, some of it is a bit yeah. dated, yeah. but uh, it was so forward looking in other ways that people can see things coming true that he was foreseeing then. I I uh, came across him I, in my first year at university. Uh, I was struggling with the issues of how to relate the Christian faith to the world around me at that time, to things like music and, and uh, art and all the rest of it. And uh, this guy came to speak at the Christian Union. He was called Nigel Goodwin. He was an actor. He had become a Christian and he had uh, been involved, I think he'd been at Labrie and uh, in Switzerland with Schaefer and uh, he started speaking about this guy Schaefer and um, about uh, the fact that he had two books coming out in the, just the, that month or the month after I think uh, Escape from Reason and The God Who Was There uh, so I 
um, you know, devoured those books when they came out and began to see, you know, how this man who was a Presbyterian minister from the States but working in Europe um, had tried to think things through to a very basic level of how you relate the, the gospel to the world that we're living in the present time. Uh, and I think many of his writings were prophetic. Sometimes they fell on deaf ears because of that, because people were thinking, oh, that's just a, for a small group of avant-garde people, you know, at universities or stuff like that. But those kind of things that were maybe a bit esoteric then now are commonplace. Um, and from the 60s onwards, these, these ideas have, have spread throughout all levels of society. Uh, he, he was accurately describing, I think, the trajectory on which Western society was on at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, pro-life was, was a big thing. It's not something I'm hearing folks speaking about. Frankly, it's something I get angry about. Mm. Uh, I know that you're really interested in pro-life, both abortion issues and, and euthanasia. Um, do guys have a right to speak about abortion? Well... If anything is uh, in the Bible, we have a right to speak about it. And uh, quite clearly, the value of human life, all human life, is emphasized in Scripture. Um, and there are various passages that, that relate to that. Um, I mean, the way that the unborn child is spoken of in the Bible views it as a person, or he, he or she as a person, Um uh, and there's a whole there's a whole raft of stuff there. So we are living at a time when there is a danger of us uh, self-censoring because of the pressures of society in things that are considered woke or, or whatever. Um, we shy away from them. And therefore, I think that needs to be emphasized in our preaching as well, because one of the basic things of Christian doctrine is what the Bible teaches about us as human beings. You know, the reason why God is so interested in us is because he made us in his own image and the human life is valuable. Uh, and that's a message that really needs to be got across today. I always think that, you know, the way that uh, Paul and Silas spoke to the the jailer in Philippi when they were imprisoned there is very important. The first words they said to him were not repent and believe. The first words they said was do yourself no harm because he was about to commit suicide. So they had this basic belief in the value of his life and this communicated itself to him and then he listened to what they had to say. Um, and it's the same with us today. We really need to give hope to people um, because at the moment, you know, there's all talk about identity, but people don't know their real identity, which is being made in the image of God and having incredible value and uh, infinite worth in God's eyes. And that's why his son came into the world to, to save us. Amen. Now, this um, podcast is sponsored by the Free Church of Scotland. I'm conscious that not all of our audience are, are Free Church, but I just want to touch on some stuff. I mean, there's two big times, um, dates in the Free Church, 1843 and 1900. 1843 was the Great Disruption. Uh, 1900 is when Free Church basically 
kind of like, you know, get picked itself up, up, up again. Um, I always see you as an 1843 guy, primarily. Um, the 1900 guys were small, struggling, highland, brave, you know, when you think of their struggle. But did, did you find that the 1843 guys, um, they, they had a bigger worldview? And, and, and do you think as a denomination, we should be more aware of our history, not just 1900, but the, the disruption uh, fathers and, and mothers yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I think it's a problem, not just in the church, but in the whole of society, in Scotland especially. We don't know the real history. There's a lot of mythology about Scottish history and a lot of selective um, attitudes to Scottish history. Um, very little is known about, you know, how the Covenanters fought for uh, freedom, basically. And uh, people like, again, in the, the Free Church, uh, the formation of the Free Church, again, a lot of it was about about freedom uh, and democracy. Um, so, yeah, I would I would certainly identify with the, the fathers of the disruption time, uh, Thomas Chalmers, Guthrie, and people like that. Um, as you say, the people in 1900 were really a small, despised group and, and struggling. And yet we should be very, very thankful for the stand that they took, um, emphasizing the importance of the church, church's doctrine being firmly grounded in scripture. And uh, uh, they, they did make, I think, um, wrong turnings in certain ways because the the whole controversy leading up to 1900 was not about uh, worship, whether psalms or hymns were sung, that kind of thing. It was about other bigger issues uh, and about what the, the actual doctrine of the church was. Uh, but soon after 1900, I think 1905, uh, uh, the church went back to singing uh, and accompanied psalms only, which I think was a, a retrograde step. But that that shaped the church in many ways in the public image for most of the 20th century. In fact, the whole of the 20th century. Um, so that, you know, it wasn't the only thing, but it made the church seem kind of peculiar in the wrong sense. My, my One of my predecessors, Alistair Ross, used to talk about God's peculiar people in the sense that uh, sometimes Christians are a bit funny, peculiar. And uh, I think that's the way that the church was often viewed. Whereas we should be, you know, at the forefront of uh, theological debate and um, social social um, involvement. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you touched on history there. I, I was educated in the Scottish school system, as you were. I, I did history, I did yeah. higher history. Um, part of that was in the Highlands of Scotland in, in Portree. Yeah. When I was never, I, you know, I knew more about the Battle of Preston Pans and, you know, Napoleon's Peninsular Campaign than I did in, in the Highland Clearances or, or the Battle of the Braes. Did you have a similar school experience? In fact, it was even worse than that. I don't remember us doing any Scottish history at all. Wow, nothing. Whether by Highland or Lowland. Yeah, yeah. incredible. Um, so the, there was a lot of um, empire history and uh, yeah. 
basically British history and English history, yeah. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about politics. I am a unionist, passionate. You are, I think, a nationalist. Um, let's talk about politics. A nationalist with, with maybe a, a small N, maybe a large N. We'll, we'll see about that <laughs> later. Folk talk about New Scotland. When Scotland today is, is vibrant, we're a Scottish denomination. We've got a Scottish accent. That's where we operate, um, the Free Church of, of, of Scotland. It's just where God in his province is put us. As we think of a New Scotland, do you think a, a lot of history has been written out and and do you fear what some folks see as a new Scotland or an independent Scotland would would airbrush big elements out of our our, our history and our national identity? Yeah, I'm really very concerned at the moment. Uh, I mean, as you say, I've been in favour of Scottish independence for most of my life, from my teenage years, certainly. Um, but I'm very concerned at the moment that the the main party that, of course, is supposed to be <laughs> fighting for that has gone very far adrift from where I think it ought to be. Um, it it's, seems a very kind of dictatorial uh, party that anybody who uh, has any independent views um, seems to be squashed in some way. And I think what highlighted that, of course, was the whole um, uh, election of the new leader of the SNP and therefore the possibility of the First Minister and particularly the way that Kate Forbes was treated. Uh, so that has, I mean, there were alarm bells before that, but certainly that rang very loud alarm bells. Um, it looks to me as if the SNP and the Greens, although both are supposed to be in favour of independence, they're much more concerned to be viewed as avant-garde than to be in support of independence. Um, and uh, along with that goes, as you say, a whole airbrushing of, of Scottish history and what it's all been all about. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, ironically, what makes us Scottish is being, you know, re- removed. And I think just taken away from the views of the ordinary, you know, person in Scotland. You know, I think the 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 polls showed that, you know, Kate Forbes was far more popular amongst the electorate. Even mm. folk who don't have Christian values, I yeah. think, appreciate sincerity. I mean, have you got a view on that? Yeah, I mean, it was quite obvious that people responded to her because she was honest. Uh, I think the problem is that people feel with politicians is that they're not being above board with what they really think. They're they're just going along with a party line or what they think is going to win votes or whatever. And so often it, it's it's very wrong. I think there's going to be a real backlash at the next elections because of all of that. But the pr- the problem is, of course, that there's very little alternative. So I think as Christians, we should be looking at the actual candidates in any election and see what their views are and see if they uh, genuinely, honestly reflect sort of more basic Christian values. I'm not saying that we should just vote for people who are Christian, but that the, the values are are those that we would, would agree with. Yeah. I mean, putting my cards on the table, I'm probably, I would not be a, in favour of a Christian party. You know, that fills me with, with no. dread. I think uh, the word Christian is a great noun. Often it's a 
a terrible adjective. Um, I mean, uh, do you think Christians should get involved in, in, in politics? And were you ever tempted to get involved? Uh, I suppose tempted, but um, I'm not a politician, I don't think. <laughs> uh, uh, I suppose I'm, I'm quite good at speaking, you know, like public speaking when I'm when I'm properly prepared. But uh, to actually deal with the nitty gritty of politics uh, and all of that, I don't think I would be cut out for that. But I, I definitely have encouraged people to be involved in politics, as as in every area of life, um, because we're we're supposed to be. Uh, uh, the salt of the earth and the light of the world and we can't be that unless we're in contact with the world and influencing it so definitely I would encourage uh, people to think about how they can be involved and often you have to start at a very uh, grassroots level whether whether it's at university being involved in a political party or whether it's in local councils or something like that but yeah we def there's no good there's no um, point in just um, carping from the sidelines unless we're prepared to be involved in some way and I mean, one way that I think we as ministers can be involved is using our influence and speaking out on, on issues and making people aware of them. And I think someone who did that, people might not always have agreed with him, was the late uh, Professor Donald McLeod, of course, who made people really think through political issues. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just reading just now Donald's uh, most recent one is in theology from Marrowmen to the Moderates. You know, it's a really great, right. great book there. I've ordered that. Is it? Is it out? Yeah, it's out. I, I got mine in the right. bookshop downstairs. So, oh, uh, dear, I should have done that instead yeah. of doing it online. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you always shop local. So, right. yeah, there's a wee plug here for the Mountain Bookshop. I, I try and get stuff from a real bookshop if I can, and, I, and I, I get it within a second. Normally, uh, but you you work in the same building, so absolute, it's easy. Ab <laughs> absolutely, I, I, I get out. But yeah, I mean, uh, I'm old enough to remember one of your predecessors, uh, who very few folk in the future will remember. He was called Alistair MacDonald, um, yeah. and he was a huge SNP character. Uh, again, one. Uh, one of he was a brilliant speaker, a brilliant mind, and you know he he died too soon. Did you uh, ever mm. come across him? Uh, he had retired through ill health before I went to Bishop Riggs, and I had met him once or twice before that. But uh, but by that stage, he was too ill really to be engaged. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he was a great, great character. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. No, I remember one thing he said. It was at a probably FCYA meeting uh, in Edinburgh. Um, he said, um, "We're all little Caesars now." Ah. You know that the New Testament tells us to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, mm -hmm. but because we all have a vote and political influence, we're all little Caesars now. And I always remember that. Isn't that interesting that you know there's one-liners that we hear from people yeah. and then they stick with us yeah. all, all over our lives. Um, I'm going into nosy mode now. Um, you you've written a couple of books, some great books. Um, and you, you read a lot. Can I ask you, I mean, it's not quite Desert Island Discs, but can you name the, the three best books ever written 
in, in your view, I know I asked you this exact same question a few years, a few weeks ago. You probably changed your your, your selection since then. But what what are the top three big books that you written and, and which you have read apart from the Bible, of course? It's, it's a difficult one because there are so many types of literature. Uh, but out of kind of what you might call the the great um, novels, things like that, I would say Les Miserables by Victor Hugo which, of course, has been made into a famous musical. But the book is absolutely fantastic if you can if you can put up with his long asides on various things that don't really enter into the, the plot. Um, Anna Karenina by Tolstoy. Uh, now, both of these uh, have great Christian influence in them. Uh, you can see principles coming out in them. Uh, and much nearer home, uh, and not written from a Christian point of view at all, is The Drinking Well by Neil Gunn. But that was very influential in, in my life and uh, made me tempted towards that kind of um, uh, pantheistic, sort of mystical view that he often puts across in his, his books at one stage in my life. But I, I think that's a, a great, great work. But then if you were to talk about, you know, specifically Christian literature, I mean, I would we mentioned already Escape from Reason by Francis Schaeffer. I think that's a, a very small book, but a cracker. That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis, that, that's amazing as well. Um, and again, very prophetic as to what's happening today. Um, or The Lord of the Rings, written by another Christian, uh, Tolkien. Uh, these are these are are great works that have been influential in my life certainly. Yeah, I mean Neil Gunn is one of my you know pinups. I would just, drinking well is up there. You know, as he contrasts kind of Edinburgh life and and uh, mm. life up in Sutherland and, and that Buddhist theme of of the circle of life. I, I love the Silver Darlings. It's probably my favourite. He's yeah, got, he's got yeah, a, it's, yeah. he's got a great chapter in there describing a revival meeting he was at in, in Lewis. That's right. Uh, it's yeah. very powerful. Yeah, very, very. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you could sense that there was a certain attraction there, but a resistance as well. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, maybe I'm just growing into a grumpy old man, but uh, it seems that a, a, a lot of our, our ministers just read too much theology. They haven't read, they haven't read the greats. They, they don't seem to be familiar with the Western canon. Um, mm -hmm. Can you read too much theology? I don't know if you can read too much, but it's the way in which you read it, perhaps, and it needs, therefore, to be informed by. Um, other literature that is reflecting on perhaps similar issues, but from different points of view, and also showing you uh, the way people are, are thinking and have been influenced to think by, by other influences. So I think there has to be an interplay between theology, philosophy, literature, and so on. Uh, I mean, theology was almost called the queen of the sciences and so on, and therefore for us it's the lens through which you look at, at everything else. But um, to really communicate, I think, effectively, you need to be aware of the culture in which you're living. Yes, and, and reading widely gives you a vocabulary, enables you to speak to the dead without having to go to a seance. You know, you can engage with the dead authors <laughs> and uh, get all, all yeah. the ideas. Okay, you're, you're also really keen on, on, on music. Um, you... 
you sing, uh, you do a few performances. Um, you've you've just writ- written a novel. Let, let's let's talk about the novel. Um, I've yet to review it for our denomination oh, magazine, no. and I'm, I'm I'm going to do that. Uh, tell us a little bit about about your novel, which people must must get. I, I got it in Kindle, and my my wife got it in hard on, on, on paperback. So tell us about it. Yeah, it's an interesting story. You know, usually um, things follow a pattern of, you know, maybe a book is written and then a film is made of it and then maybe a song comes out of that. But it was the opposite direction for me. I wrote a song uh, about this old crofter in the Highlands whose uh, daughter's son had died of a drugs overdose. Dan Mackay, wasn't it? Dan Mackay. He was Dan Mackay, yeah, from Wester Ross. And uh, he sets out to find out the truth about it and to basically bring to judgment those who have been responsible for his death. So that was the song. And uh, a couple of people kindly reviewed the song, uh, Callum MacDonald of Runrig and uh, Tom Morton, the broadcaster and writer Uh, and I think it was Tom who said it's a film that song and uh, Callum started actually sketching out ideas for a film and so I thought there might be some some, uh, mileage in this so I set out to learn how to write a film script which I did and tried to hawk it around various people I knew with with, uh, some sort of influence in the uh, film or acting industry uh, without any success, I may say. And then I thought, this, this took some years to come about, I thought, well, why not just write the book? And uh, so I did that, and the book's now been published. So um, it it gives the whole, what I call the whole legend behind the the story of the song. Yeah. It's called The Forge, and yeah. it's available on Amazon. And uh, I hope it's selling well. Uh, it's real. It's a page turner. It, yeah, it's all well to begin with. It, obviously, it tailed off a bit, but hopefully, leading up to Christmas and with a good plug from yourself, it will go well. No, it, it really is. It really is a page turner. It is the forge, and you can get it on Amazon. Um, and you know, if you want to know about history, church history, theology, popular culture, and you don't like reading big, heavy books, it's all there. Uh, you know, it really, you know, it really. So it's the Forge by by Alec McDonald. Okay, um, the songs, Alec, three best songs ever. Let's, let's get. You don't need to sing them. I mean, there's so many. No, no, and your your views on this may change from week to week and so on. But obviously, a person who's been hugely influenced, a huge influence for me musically and lyrically is Bob Dylan. And one of his earlier songs that I really loved was Chimes of Freedom, which is a very interesting one. It's sort of picturing him caught in a thunderstorm, but then reflecting on all the things going on in the world around him and the chimes of freedom. I don't know. I think that he and maybe a girlfriend took shelter in an entrance to a church or something. And so it's the chimes, the bells, but also the, the, the chimes of the, the thunder and the lightning and so on. It's a very, very powerful song. And I, I can't do it justice in describing it in a few words like that. The other is from his um, gospel 
period where he was writing songs expressing his Christian faith. And one of these is a beautiful song called Every Grain of Sand, which talks about God's care over every little detail of life, uh, as well as, you know, thinking Christianly about life. And uh, the other one I thought of, uh, there's so many, but the other one I thought of is uh, one of the last songs that Johnny Cash wrote called The Man Comes Around, which is about the prospect of judgment coming. Um, and that's a very, very powerful song too. But there are so, so many songs. Where could you stop? <laughs> okay, um, you, you're a weighty person. You, you, you're a serious person. Oh, the last few months, last few years, You've experienced, you know, some some difficulties. A good friend, Clive Bailey, passed away. Your brother, Colin, passed away. Uh, you know, you, you're at an age when a lot of your friends' contemporaries are, are, are passing on. You, you've had to deal, deal with a lot of, you know, family issues, family illness. Um, mm-hmm. Can you just tell us, maybe even help others, how, how has your faith helped you through this, this time of change in your life and you're, you're hitting stuff that you didn't expect? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're really hurt and you grieve over the loss of, of friends and, and family. Um, I mean, I was really... I mean, going back even further than those recent ones, one of the ones that hit me very much at the time was the death of Douglas McMullen, yeah. who, you know, was a great uh, hero of mine in many ways. Um, and in more recent times, Kenny MacDonald, who was a good friend of mine too, Clive Bailey, as you mentioned, Donald MacLeod, mm-hmm. uh, and my brother Colin, who died this year. And you're, you're really hurt, and you feel the, you feel the loss greatly, um, you miss you miss each one of these uh, so deeply, but um, and, and and again, as you mentioned, there was really serious illness this year. My daughter Alison had a major operation for cancer, but it's now recovering very well, thankfully. Um, and I think after all of that, this uh, summer I was really feeling quite down about everything and I'm, I'm maybe only still now just coming out of that um, but I would say that the Christian faith doesn't take away grief or sorrow we grieve but not as those who have no hope as we're told in the scriptures uh, so the loss hurts but we know that death is not the end and that's that's the basic thing uh, those who have gone are with Christ which is far better you know, we can visit their graves and we can remember them, but they are not there. They are there with Christ. And, um, you know, I hope to see them again. And uh, although, as I said before, they'll be far nearer the throne than I'll be, but I'll certainly hope to see them again in that new life. Yeah. Alex, thank you for these very strong and helpful words towards the end of our interview. Thank you not only for the podcast today, but for your ministry to me and to to many others, thousands of people over a lifetime. And we wish you uh, a long and happy continual retirement. And may you be able to sing many songs um, dirges and dances both are both are equally valid is that not the case indeed, indeed. okay thank you thank you thank you 
our audience thank you very much for for listening again to this episode of a healthy gospel church podcast please tell other folk about the podcast tell other folk about this one i'm sure you found a lot of what was spoken about today as has been interesting and again please uh, have a look at uh, the forge just the book just written by alex thank you have a great day people Thank you.